Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Scott Anderson. He's a science journalist and an author. Uh, We're going to talk about his book, The Psychobiotic Revolution, and we're going to talk about what psychobiotics are, how they affect your brain health and your state of mind, and uh, actually how they're connected to your microbiome as well. So, Scott, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. What, what is psychobiotics? And let's, uh, let's get into it. Well, psychobiotics are uh, a class of bacteria, or actually, let's say, microbes um, that uh, help to improve your mood. So this is something that's kind of uh, intriguing and actually quite surprising. And it started in uh, about 2003 when a Japanese researcher named Sudo took some germ-free mice, mice that have no germs whatsoever. They're born completely germ-free and have no bacteria in their guts. And he found out that their behavior was different. And that was a little shocking. Everybody was like, well, how could gut bacteria affect the the behavior? And then he gave them bacteria uh, to replenish the bacteria that they didn't have, and their behavior returned to normal. So that showed not only that there was a connection between bacteria and mood, but also that it was causal, that you could change it by getting rid of bacteria, for instance, through antibiotics, or by adding bacteria, for instance, through prebiotics or uh, probiotics like yogurts and other fermented foods. Um, so that's, said the, uh, when, in that experiment, when the mice's demeanor changed, what did it change to when they had no, when they were germ-free? Um, it, it was kind of complicated. They have a different response to stress when they have uh, no bacteria. And that is one of the things that happened. They also found out that they were a little bit less curious about other mice. Um, And there were some things that made them sort of antisocial. The the behaviors were kind of strange, unexpected, but they were definitely connected to the lack or presence of these bacteria in the gut. Okay. Well, keep going. So they did this experiment. They saw that there's a correlation. What other work has been done since the bolster? Well, so, so that was uh, the first studies were done in mice, and it's easy to do those studies because mice can be made germ-free, but not many animals can be made germ-free. Um, and also, you know, I mean, if you've got a depressed mouse, that's one good thing, but uh, we would like to see that it's better for, uh, that it's helpful for humans as well. Uh, so the studies have gone on since then. In 2013, uh, John Cryan and Ted Dynan, two researchers, and Catherine Stanton too, Uh, at University College Cork in Ireland uh, did a study and they found that there were certain specific bacteria that did seem to have a correlation to the mood of the subject. And that that again was being done with mice, but later on their studies have gone on to work with people as well. We're starting to see the same kind of uh, result, namely that certain bacteria uh, namely uh, things like bifidobacteria longum and lactobacillus rhamnosus, 
that those bacteria, for instance, have a, an impact on humans. Um, and the impact is to reduce anxiety and to increase cognition in some cases. So different bacteria do different things, but the results are continuing to come in. Um, it's hard still to be causal with the human studies. Uh, so we've got an association between bacteria and mood, but not necessarily causality yet. That's a harder thing to do in humans. Uh, but the idea that it's causal in mice makes you think that it would probably be causal in humans as well. But we need to have some randomized controlled trials to really determine that. Well, what comes to mind is I remember hearing uh, you know, 80% of serotonin is made, quote unquote, in the gut. I don't know what creature is making it and how science knows that. What's your, uh, you know, how does that play into what you're talking about here? Is that true? Uh, what's yeah. the details? It's very interesting. Serotonin, of course, is one of those drugs that's used to deal with uh, depression. And it's, it's, it's kind of a complicated story, but, but we can talk about it and make sense of it here uh, one little bit at a time. Um, serotonin is made largely in the gut, 90% probably, uh, more than your 80% figure is made in the gut. And it's mostly to control contractions in the, in the gut. So peristalsis, which is the movement of the gut that forces food through the gut uh, is controlled mostly by serotonin. So most of it's there. But in terms of um, how to get it to the brain, that's a trickier problem because the body is set up with a blood brain barrier. And that blood brain barrier is designed to not let things like serotonin and dopamine and other neurotransmitters, these are the chemicals that the brain uses to communicate one cell to another. Those things shouldn't get through the blood brain barrier because they could cause havoc. And so it's hard to know exactly how serotonin or other chemicals that are created in the gut are getting into the brain. And it's an area of ongoing research, but, but we're finding out more and more about it all the time. So the idea of serotonin for antidepressants is that you can't give serotonin and expect it to get to the brain. Instead, what they give you is something called a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And what that does, that can get through to your brain. That can pass through the blood-brain barrier. Once it's in the brain, it stops the uptake of serotonin, which means that there's an excess of serotonin in the brain. And that seems to help some people with depression. But it's still a kind of a, a dicey proposition because we don't know why serotonin would improve people's mood in the brain. It's not clear that a neurotransmitter just topping off a neurotransmitter would actually have that kind of an impact on the brain. So there's a lot of questions that are still involved with all of this. Uh, one of the things that we have seen, though, and this is some of this stuff is quite new, is that there seems to be a way for the gut to communicate with the brain through the vagus nerve. And it's been a little bit tricky to find out how all that's connected up. But we've now found all the cells that are responsible for communicating things that are going on, neurotransmitters and, and whatnot that are in the gut, transmitting them through the vagus nerve, which runs up to the brain. And if you cut the vagus nerve, a lot of these probiotics, a lot of these psychobiotic effects disappear. So we think that the vagus nerve is very important to all of this. Well, do you think that actual molecules are being sent through the vagus nerve or is the gut able to stimulate the brain in such a way through the vagus nerve that it informs it of how to act? I, those are, that's a really good question. And it's not clear exactly which one of those things is happening. My suspicion is 
that you're not actually sending molecules up through the vagus nerve, but rather you're sending nerve impulses that go up through the vagus nerve. So it is communicating something from the gut and it's being interpreted in the brain in a certain way. And, and possibly what it's telling the gut, what the gut is telling the brain, and it's actually a two-way conversation. The brain talks to the gut as well. What may be communicated by the, this transmission is the state of the gut in terms of inflammation. And so one of the things that we think is happening uh, is that when you have quote unquote dysbiosis, which means that your gut bacteria are not really working together as, as a team, when you have this sort of a, a bad mix of bacteria in your gut, it can lead to a leaky gut and that leak, those leaks can let bacteria into your bloodstream. And once they're in your bloodstream, your heart just dutifully pumps them to every organ in your body. Uh, that can cause systemic inflammation. And inflammation over a long enough period of time can cause a lot of chronic diseases, maybe almost all chronic diseases. And that includes things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and other things that affect the brain, but also things like diabetes and obesity and heart disease. So it's a very important juncture. Looking at how the gut is dealing with uh, leakiness is very important in terms of your health. So that's one of the big things that we think may be motivating a lot of the impact of psychobiotics on the brain is basically by lowering inflammation. So, okay, in particular, what is your research about then in, in the realm of psychobiotics? Are you looking for certain molecules and certain bacteria that create them, or are you looking at the whole ecosystem or both? Well, both things are happening. Uh, there, there is definitely a big push to look for the specific probiotics, the specific bacteria that are leading to a healthy gut and also leading to a healthy mood. But there's also some new research coming out. We've had a, a, a long time uh, to look at how bacteria work. And as we do it, we find new ways of looking at things. So when we started all this stuff out, it was impossible to culture some 90% of the bacteria that we would find in the gut. So we couldn't put it into a Petri dish and look at it that way. And that was the standard way of looking at bacteria. It took us a long time to get to a new stage, which is uh, polymerase chain reaction, which is a way of examining the DNA. And when we did that, we looked at specific parts of bacteria, the parts that are kind of conserved through all bacteria and have very specific changes that identify which bacteria is which. And those studies led us to identify many, many more bacteria. That's where the other 90% of them bacteria that we couldn't see before all of a sudden became visible. But now we've gone to another stage and that, that new step takes us to the metabolites. What are the bacteria producing? What molecules do they produce? And what molecules do they consume? And when you look at that, you start to see that that may be getting us closer to the answers that we're looking for. In other words, the bacteria themselves may be very important, but a lot of bacteria can do very similar things. So they, you may be able to substitute one bacteria for another, but what is important is the metabolites they're producing. And by looking at those metabolites, we're starting to see much better correlations between uh, the, gut back, the gut metabolites and the mood and also states of disease. So that's been a new study uh, that came out of, uh, of Belgium. And that was a very large study where they looked at not just the bacteria, but the metabolites themselves. And then they were able to backtrack that to say, okay, there are certain bacteria that we found that are very important in these metabolic pathways. And so the information that we're getting now, the, the way that we're looking at the bacteria, the way that we're looking at the metabolites, 
all of this stuff is getting us better and better refinement on, on which ones, uh, which angles are really working and which ones are not. But people have been able to look at the uh, cycling of the prevalence of bacteria, you know, before and after meals, you know, diurnally, et cetera, and the production of metabolites and the cycling of that. Yes. And so, and as a consequence, we're starting to fill in a lot of the details. Bacteria turn out to be a little bit promiscuous and they will easily pick up an entire gene from another bacterium. So when they do that, all of a sudden they create new proteins. And it's hard now to figure out, well, exactly what kind, if, if a bifidobacter gets something from a lactobacillus, which is it now? And so you've got these bacteria that are kind of one thing, but because they have all these extra DNA, uh, little chunks of DNA, these basically new genes, they are kind of a mix between different species. And so it becomes a little bit vague if you're just looking at the species of bacteria, but it becomes a lot more uh, reasonable to understand what's going on when you look at the metabolites, because that's ultimately what these genes are creating, are the metabolites that in turn cause these changes through, that, that get picked up and understood by the vagus nerve and transmitted to the brain. So is it better to look at the gut as a, like a job center for bacteria, or it's like a bazaar when they're, they're trading resources, you know, they're, they're looking for stuff, and that's why they show up. They're I altering kinda, and, and changing stuff and then giving back, you know, stuff that they produce metabolites. I, I like the idea of a bazaar. I think that's great. It's a, it's kind of a bustling little uh, community that's going on down there. So not only are genes being traded back and forth, but one bacteria's uh, exudates, one bacteria's secretions will be another bacteria's food. And so they live together in these groups that are pretty well defined in terms of you know, one kind of needs another. And you, you rarely find some of these bacteria without their partner bacteria. And those partners can be, uh, form large partnerships. And what these are called is they end up forming something called a biofilm. And biofilms are really interesting because when you get a certain number of bacteria together at certain quantities, they will start to issue something called a quorum molecule. And that tells everybody that they can form a biofilm and they actually start to create these polymer, almost like buildings, uh, with plumbing and, and ways for mother, uh, other metabolites to get through and to uh, make sure that every part of the biofilm is getting nutrition. But these biofilms are very tough. And as a consequence, they are something that can be good or bad, but whether they're good or bad um, <laughs> is compounded by the fact that they're very tough. Uh, a common biofilm that we think about all the time is plaque on your teeth and tartar on your teeth. That's a consequence of bacteria forming a, a group of pretty well-known now uh, bacteria that work together to create something that is that becomes hard and hard enough that you have to scrape it off with a knife. So these are this sort of thing is probably going on all throughout your gut. Um, in general, if you're healthy, then that biofilm can be a good thing. If you're not, if you've got Crohn's disease or if you've got uh, ulcerative colitis, it could be part of the problem and why it's so hard to get rid of some of these terrible gut diseases. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. As, um, I mean, could you fluorescently tag various species that are really predominant in your gut and then try to image the structure of the biofilms to see if they're layered or interconnected or what they look like in a gut? Yes, Richard, they've done exactly that. Um, and, the, and what you can see is these beautiful, well, 
you're if you're a mind a scientist like me, then they are beautiful. Um, you got uh, corinobacteria forming these things that look like bushes with strands going out, and then at the end, instead of leaves, you got other types of bacteria that are forming little nodules there, and it forms these structures that are quite lovely. Um, and they are, and, and, and so we know a lot about those and we're doing exactly what you said. They're, they're fluorescently tagged and each in different colors and you can just see these things uh, in, in beautiful detail now. Huh. Have, have you been able to use like fluoroscopy to watch someone, I mean, eating and watching how the biofilms move and change? And, and I, have not seen, I have not seen anybody do anything like that. It sounds like a fascinating idea. It's not clear though that biofilms move a lot. Um, I it, it, the current understanding is that they kind of get attached to their spot and grow there uh, and, and sort of form a, a tough layer on top of the uh, tissues. Yeah, like if I eat a meal, who eats first? You know, do some bacteria work on it and then my, me and then back and forth and back and forth? Like what's your, what's your thought? Mostly what's going on in your gut is that you get first dibs on everything. So when you eat something the sugars and the starches are all quickly absorbed in the small intestines. Uh, what's left over are these large, long chain sugars called uh, oligosaccharides. That, and the, the popular name for that really is fiber. Um, fiber makes it, it, it can't be digested. You can't digest it with your enzymes or your acids. And it makes it all the way down to the colon. And at the colon, that's where all this fiber starts to feed the bacteria. They live for this fiber. And when they get it, they produce things like short chain fatty acids, uh, such as uh, butyrate. And these chemicals actually act as food for the cells lining your gut. And they also can help to heal the gut. So if there's a problem, this butyrate can go down there and, and really fix up holes, leakiness, and all of that stuff. So if you are not getting enough fiber, you're not getting this butyrate and you're not getting that nourishment and that healing effect uh, that comes from feeding fiber to your microbes. So you're saying that um, our gut bacteria act as like a second stomach to further process parts of what we eat and then, you know, allow us to access it nutritionally? Yeah, and, and it's probably an evolutionary adaption so that uh, that in cases where there is not a lot of food, fiber is not considered to be one of those delicious foods. In fact, that's why we've taken it out of everything. Um, fiber is, however, one of those things that if you don't have anything else and you are starving, then your microbes can produce these fatty acids that are actually quite nutritious and that add a lot of, it's a way of getting a little extra calories out of food that is not normally considered to be very nutritious. That's good if you're starving. It may be a big problem for humans today because we have so much food and it may be part of the reason why we are becoming obese is that we've got these very efficient bacteria trying to eke the last calorie out of every bit that we eat. Yeah, going back to earlier, talking about psychobionics, um, you know, when you're talking about the different bacteria that are within us, I would think that if, you know, obese people, I wish I'm probably classified to be one, um, <laughs> you know, have a certain predominant regime of bacteria in their gut versus thin people and do we also see uh, personality wise or emotion emotional states you know let's say for obese people to be more negative or more a certain way than thin people you know putting society aside but just looking at it from the action of the bacteria yeah uh, in fact the idea of a the jolly fat man is probably not right uh, depression is strongly comorbid with uh, obesity, which means that, that it occurs with obesity. In a lot of cases, you'll find depression and anxiety comes along with it. Um, they have looked at the bacteria that are in thin people, and they have looked at the bacteria in fat people. And there are 
at least two bacteria that are associated with being lean. One of them is Christensenella and another one is Acromantia. And those two are associated with the lean phenotype, whether that means that they cause it or whether it means the other way around that being skinny means that you get these bacteria, it's not clear yet. But we do know that, that not only does Christensenella um, help, to, is not only is it associated with the lean phenotype, but it also seems to be associated with families and that somehow it's being passed down from, from uh, mother to child. Oh, um, you know, if you, if you looked at people that are on a certain diet or change their diet, let's say someone is doing like standard American diet and then goes keto or vegan for a period of six months, um, you know, I'm sure people's gut bacteria have been sampled, but how about mood and other factors? Yeah, they, um, what we're seeing is that Indeed, when you change your diet within within hours and and definitely within days, your microbes will change uh, to accommodate that, and it only makes sense. I mean, you're basically it's like putting uh, growth media on a on a petri dish. You're going to grow certain kinds of bacteria that way, and we're doing the same thing. Our petri dish is our gut, and when we put in food, we are going to encourage the growth of some and not the growth of others, and so what we're seeing is that there is that correlation and there is a correlation between um, the kinds of food that you're eating and your mood. We are seeing that. And for instance, people who are eating uh, yogurt, for instance, um, have been shown to not only are, are we able to see changes in their brain and actual physical changes in their brain in terms of the size of their hippocampus or the size of their amygdala, um, but also we're able to see that there is uh, using fMRI, functional MRI, we're able to watch what parts of the brain are lighting up. And we're able to see that based upon uh, yogurt consumption or other fermented food consumption, different parts of the brain light up. And those people tend to have a greater resilience to stressful reactions, to stressful situations. So that we are seeing that. And, and another thing, and this is a little bit this is a little bit on the cutting edge of, of things and, and, and a little bit iffy. So um, don't, don't uh, quote me on this for uh, any long period of time. Uh, but we are starting to see with fecal transplants. Um, fecal transplants are done in order to help people who are usually who are dying from a C. diff infection. Um, and they are phenomenally successful at treating C. diff infections. So you take the fecal matter from a donor and that donor has been checked over to make sure they don't have diseases. And that is injected into the, to, to the person who's suffering from C. diff. And it can, and 90% of the time, it will cure them. And then the cure is quick. And, and it, within, within hours, these people are, are suddenly not suffering anymore. But some people have had changes in their mood. Some people who have been depressed for a long time, all of a sudden feel better and their depression is gone after a fecal transplant. So it's possible that we should not only be checking to see if they have any diseases, but the donor maybe should be checked for their mood as well, because that may get transferred along with the fecal matter. So um, I, mean, I hope this would have happened, but uh, people that have you know, treatment resistant depression or just certain kinds of depression or PTSD, have they had, you know, have a lot of them had, have their microbiome shotgun sequenced? Look at the difference between the people that are not depressed. Yeah, there are some studies with that. And, and what we find is generally the same kind of thing is that they're just loosely, generally speaking, it's been very, very difficult to, to tease apart the exact uh, uh, 
call it a signature, a bacterial signature that correlates to different types of things like PTSD or depression. One of the things that we've noticed is that people who are depressed or anxious seem to have, and this includes people with PTSD, seem to have a less diversity in their microbes. They seem to have fewer species than, than other people who are in better spirits. So that's the one thing that we kind of think is going on, but even that's kind of a slippery concept because I've seen some recent studies showing that perhaps uh, that's not always the case, that diversity is not always key. Uh, there have been some attempts along the way to come up with something called an enterotype, which is like, what type of gut do you have? And to categorize it into three or four or five different types of gut bacteria. But mostly that gets shut down because the more we look into it, the more variety we find and the harder it is to really nail down the specific species that might be responsible for mood or other aspects of, of your health. Well, the species may not even matter, like you said, if they're changing plasmas all the time. So exactly. I mean, what is that? I've heard that a lot. Oh, the gut's more diverse. What does that mean? There's more different species that... Is more is a different metabolomic profile. I mean, what what does diversity mean? And you know, we got to zero in on this and, and see. Okay, what's useful about it? Yeah, I think that this a lot of these things come back to ecology. Um, when you look at the savanna and you look at the animals that live in the on the in the desert or that live in the jungle, and you start to see that there's a certain amount of animals that are necessary in order to have a well balanced ecosystem. And if you start to take out key species, then the thing can fall apart and you get dominance of one particular species over another. You might, by taking out certain uh, uh, animals, you might end up having lions take over. And when the lions take over, that's not a good thing because basically they will be having a hard time finding food and they'll be competing for that, but they leave the whole, leave the whole ecosystem in disarray. That's one, one of the things that we think is happening when you have a more diverse microbiota, you've got more bacteria that are kind of forcing other bacteria to stay in line. Um, it's not clear exactly how it all works out, but this is what we're coming to when we look at some of these things uh, is, is an ecological approach to the bacteria in the gut. And that seems to be helpful, but it's, we still have a long ways to go on figuring this out. And as you said, Richard, the, the odds are good that we may never find anything that really uh, summarizes all this in a neat way especially if what we should be looking for is metabolites and not bacteria in the first place. Well, I mean, you know, I've seen this with cows. It's pretty gross. They'll have like literally a porthole into their stomach. Right. Um, could something be done with a cow or a mouse? You know, you, you uh, don't feed it for a day then you feed it a meal and you, uh, you know, over time you pull out bits of, of what it's eating and shotgun sequence, or like at least look at the metabolomics of, what's going on as it's digesting a meal, you know, hour by hour, let's say you take I don't know, three, four samples, six samples, whatever it is, longitudinally in a short period of time, and look at the metabolomic profile. Maybe that would give you an idea of, okay, first this is happening, then this is happening, then this and this, and this correlates to the ability of these bacteria to digest this. And again, to answer like who eats first and next and next and next, and maybe that would give you some idea on the function of what's going on. Yeah, I've actually done some of these studies, not with cows, but with horses. Um, and so we've been looking at some of that stuff for a long time now. Um, and, and it's not clear exactly how, for instance, it's not clear how a cow relates to a human because they have these four stomachs and they, have, they chew their cud. There's a lot of things that go on with, 
with cows that make them a little bit problematic for uh, uh, matching up to humans. But horses are a little bit better, but they also are strict vegetarians and they get all of their energy from the microbial breakdown of uh, cellulose and other things that produce the, these fatty acids that I was talking about. So most of the energy, most of the food sources that, that a, a horse gets is coming from microbial decomposition of the food. So we can look at some of that. Some of that's being done. Uh, some of these studies have actually, uh, one of the older studies is a soldier in, in uh, not a, I, I take this back, not a soldier, but somebody who was injured in the Civil War ages. Um, and at that time, he was not able to, re, to uh, completely heal his gut wound. And a doctor figured out that he could look at, use this as a way to look at how food gets digested. And so he would drop food into this hole, into this man's, this poor man's fistula, and he would see what happens. And he wasn't looking at bacteria, but he was looking at all the different stages. And we actually have learned a lot from that kind of horrible study. Um, the guy himself was not really fond of this after a while and said, you know, I, I think I've had this. I've had enough of this and bandaged, bandaged himself up and walked away. But um, th those studies are, are kind of being done. I think that the studies that are giving us the best information now are these metabolic studies. Unfortunately, they're expensive. So we just don't have a lot of them right now. So what, what studies do you think need to be done and what needs to be elucidated? I think that the, the studies that we want to be looking at are associational studies and causality studies that show which bacteria are actually producing the metabolites that we're interested in to find out what those metabolites are. What exactly, it turns out bacteria can produce neurotransmitters. Why are they producing neurotransmitters? They don't have brains. Yet they, these are fairly, we, we kind of think of neurotransmitters as maybe some highfalutin molecule because hey, it's, it's involved with the way we think and the brain is the pinnacle of all of creation, we think. Um, it's not. Well, wait a it's, second, uh, you, you said, when a biofilm is set up, it can act as a, I guess, as a temporary structure to accomplish yeah. a lot of higher functions, you know, digestion, uh, movement of materials. So why, maybe the neurotransmitters and the speculation, maybe no, they are being used by the biofilm as like an impromptu communication network. Richard, I think you're right. Um, that's the, at least a lot of the consensus is that the bacteria are using these molecules that are basically evolutionarily conserved. Uh, they have been around forever. They, even plants have some of these things. So we tend to get involved with how exotic neurochemicals are because it's our brain. But in fact, it's, it's pretty widespread among all of the kingdoms of life. And you're probably right, the bacteria are using these neurotransmitters to talk with each other, but they're also using them to talk with us. And that seems to be unequivocal. Um, how exactly they're talking to us is not clear, but it does seem there is a connection between cravings that we have and certain bacteria in the gut. So when you think that you really want a pizza or you really want a candy bar and you think it's you talking, it's quite likely that some of your bacteria are the ones that are actually controlling these cravings. And they're saying, this is what we need right now. And they're telling you that by giving you a uh, chemicals that make you hungry. And then when you, when you eat the donut or whatever uh, hits the sweet spot, then they'll produce dopamine. And that could easily be one of the ways that, that bacteria are controlling us in, in a sense. Um, it's, not, it's not clear that, that how big that effect is, but it does seem to be a real effect. Yeah, that's crazy. Hmm. It is crazy. So what, what's the overall goal with your research? Is it 
simply to understand what's going on? Or is there a particular condition that, you know, for some reason affects you personally that you want to help with? You know, do you know someone that's depressed or like, what, what's driving you? Uh, a, a lot of things, actually. As a scientist, of course, curiosity is one of those things that gets us into a lot of trouble. But we're, uh, it, it is absolutely fascinating to look at all these bacteria and to see the complexity that's there. And then to see some of the tools that we've got now that help us tear that complexity down. That's fascinating. On a personal level, I've always had a terrible gut. And uh, recently, I've figured out why and have fixed it. Um, and I fix it with a prebiotic, not a probiotic, uh, a prebiotic called galacto-oligosaccharide, which is one of those fibers that I mentioned earlier, uh, an oligosaccharide that com- overnight changed my entire life. And that, and it's three grams per day. And so you see what a small amount that it takes to have a huge impact uh, on a person's gut. So I know that in our age that we have maybe 30% of the population is actually the right, uh, is actually somewhat healthy. The other two thirds are overweight or obese. And these people are begging for some sort of a solution to all of this. So that's one of the things that I see out there is that we can make a, a lot of people happier with psychobiotics and we may be able to make a lot of people healthier by making sure that their guts are no longer leaking bacteria and causing systemic inflammation. Well, okay. If you don't mind maybe discussing your situation just a little bit. So you said your gut wasn't good. Like what were you experiencing? And are you eating like a a prebiotic powder with your meals? Like, you know, what happened with you? um, I have have had uh, probably irritable bowel syndrome. Um, It was uh, involved with, and, and I hope we don't lose a lot of your listeners here, but basically going to the bathroom six, seven, eight times a day. Um, and diarrhea and misery and everything in your life is planned around that because you have to get you have to be near a bathroom Um, and it is just miserable uh, and and it's painful and so I now take three grams of goss with my coffee in the morning and that's all Um, it's inexpensive and it's incredibly effective I tried everything. Because I wrote this book, The Psychobiotic Revolution. I didn't want to have anything in there that I didn't have some familiarity with. So I went through almost every probiotic and prebiotic that's out there. And it's going to be the case that it's very personalized. It's very unique. Everybody's going to have a different little problem based upon their own genetic proclivities and how their gut uh, bacteria got started in the first place. So you need to kind of look at what's out there, try things out, give it a couple of weeks, take notes, and you can figure out the, the one thing or the two or three things that are going to help you to live a better, healthier life. And that was a huge breakthrough for me. And, and you know, when you, when you find something like that, you want to tell everybody about it. Maybe yeah, definitely, not. definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, I've done a bunch of podcasts on IBD and Crohn's, and it affects a lot of people. Like you said, it's a terrible condition. There's a lot of yeah. researchers working on it. So I'm glad you spoke about it. It's important, I think. People listening, if they have a problem, you may may have just uh, given them a, a way to figure out how to help themselves. So it's good. Yeah, that, that, I, I hope so. It's a miserable condition. What do you think happened, though? So you took this prebiotic. It acted as food for a particular you know, set of microbes within your gut. And then what? Do you think that they produced um, you know, an SCFA that you needed? Or what do you think happened? I don't know exactly. I know that GOSS, the galacto-oligosaccharide, feeds a specific species of bacteria called, a bit, or, or genre of bacteria called bifidobacter. 
Um, and that is something that you get with mother's milk. Uh, it's one of the earliest sets of bacteria that you get. You get lactobacillus and you get bifidobacter with when you are a, a baby from mother's milk, even from formula. Those are the two that uh, bacteria that are the most prominent when you're a baby. I don't know what happened to me, but I was sick from the day that I was born. Uh, my mom wanted to take me back. <laughs> it's like this baby is coming out of both ends. And so I don't know whether I missed it. I don't know what caused that. It could have been antibiotics. Antibiotics were very popular then. That could have just wiped out my system. But for whatever reason, I suffered through this for years. And all the doctors, the doctors would say, well, what you need to do is drink more milk. Well, it turned out I was lactose intolerant. So that was not helpful. Or you need to stop eating spicy foods. Well, I have no idea where that comes from, but that had nothing to do with anything. Um, and it just took all these years of trying and trying to, to figure it out. And then all of a sudden, wham, this uh, galacto-oligosaccharide um, just turned my life around. And so now I go, I go to the bathroom once in the morning and clean it up with a whisk broom and you're, <laughs> we're all done. It's real simple. It's amazing. This is what other people apparently do that are healthy. And it's something I had never uh, been familiar with before. So it's opened up my life and made, made a big difference. I know that it feeds bifidobacteria. I don't know what the bifidobacteria is doing, but I imagine when I take this that it's causing a bloom of bifido. And that bifido is then balancing out something in my gut that makes everything start to work better. And all of a sudden, I'm just like a normal person. So it, 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 was, it was a huge revelation to me and was a big part of, of why I ended up writing this book. So you didn't change your diet at all? It was just nope. the addition of this? Well, I have been changing my diet continuously as, as new things come in. Um, so as a scientist, you're, you know, you're always looking at things and saying, well, is that really going to work out or something? And I like to try these things uh, you know, to, within limits. I don't want to go crazy on things. But I have added much more fiber into my diet. I cook for myself. Um, we don't have fast food anymore. Uh, we, min we minimize refined starches. In fact, there are really no refined starches left in my diet whatsoever. Um, so if you're going to eat bread, it's always going to be whole wheat bread um, or something even, you know, with, with more stuff in its seeds and whatnot. Um, and minimize the amount of meat that you eat. Uh, eat a little bit more fish because fish is, uh, has omega-3s and omega-3s have an anti-inflammatory effect. Um, and so there are just several things that we, and, and if you look in the book, you'll see that I do talk about certain dietary changes that you can do. And, and I can talk about them from a point of view of actually knowing what I'm talking about because I do it myself. And it has made everything a lot better. But, but none of those things actually did as much as the, the simple three grams of goss in the morning, uh, which is shocking. Um, but, but now that all of these things are together, I am in much better shape and uh, my mood has improved too. Have, have there been studies or would you be able to put on a study you think uh, would be, you know, I don't know about I don't know how tough an IRB it would be, but, you know, to have people that sign up and say, yes, I have treatment-resistant depression, and then to give them a series of prebiotics on a regular basis for a month and see if it helps their mood. Uh, yeah, that is actually going on. Uh, one of my co-authors, Ted Dynan, is, uh, is a psychiatrist, and he has several patients who, for one reason or another, are not into taking antidepressant drugs. And so he is working with some of them to give them probiotics instead. And he's getting some fantastic results out of that. Uh, it is really working for a lot of his patients. Oh, is it prebiotics or probiotics or both? It's both. Mostly he's giving 
probiotics. He's giving uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus is one of his, the, the popular ones that he's giving, but he's also encouraging people to try fermented foods like uh, yogurt and sauerkraut. Um, we know if you look at some other cultures that are around the world, like in Korea, you might get uh, a little sauerkraut, some kimchi with your, with your dinner. And instead of it just being a blob of sauerkraut, it's actually four or five different little spoonfuls of different kinds of kimchi. And that may be an attempt to increase the, the, the uh, diversity of bacteria in your gut. So we're, we, it's, it's helpful to look at what other cultures have done over thousands of years of figuring out how to do it right and compare that to what we do in the United States where we have almost zero uh, you know, culinary heritage um, and we just mix things together without any kind of an idea of what really goes together. So you look at the places that are doing well with uh, good microbes, good guts, and good mood. And there are places like uh, the Mediterranean diet, the Nordic diet, and the Japanese diet, where people live to be into their hundreds, and they're healthy all the way through, and they're happier than most. And if you look at that, you realize, okay, these people have plenty of time, thousands of years to figure out what to do with their local fauna and flora to create a balanced diet. That's not what we do and to get back to something like that. So I would recommend if you want to improve your mood and your health, going with something like a Mediterranean or, or Japanese type diet. The Japanese diet may be a little different. They actually have new genes that are specifically there to digest seaweed. Um, so they may have a, uh, they may not be as appropriate for, their diet may not be as appropriate for uh, the Caucasians in this country, um, but it's still something to look at in terms of an overall plan uh, that doesn't just say, oh, let's just, you know, all I wanna do is eat uh, uh, McDonald's burgers. Don't bother me with anything else. That's the sort of thing that we're doing in this country that is making us all really sick. Um, so we, 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 would, uh, do be, we would do quite well to actually look at some of these other cultures that have had a long time to put together a, a rounded diet. How can people find out more about what you're doing? You know, they can get your book perhaps on Amazon and you know, what website can they go to? Like, how can they find out more? Yeah, the, the book is on Amazon, The Psychobiotic Revolution. And it is also, uh, there's also a website. Um, and it is the psychobioticrevolution.com. And uh, it's actually the, what I'm seeing here is psychobiotic-revolution.com. Let's see what happens if we get rid of that dash. Um, and that should, that's a website that will take them to all sorts of, yeah, both will work. Psychobioticrevolution.com. And that's where you will find all sorts of new articles uh, on a more or less weekly basis, um, talking about the latest and greatest research that is uh, going on with psychobiotics and uh, other things involved with the gut-brain axis. Um, so the latest is always there. Okay. Well, very good. And um, last thing, is there any of the major questions that you're trying to answer that I haven't asked you about? Or can we recap for a moment? You know, what main things would you like to answer with your research in the next five, 10 years? Um, I actually would like to get down to the metabolics of what's going on in the gut. I think that's where the most exciting research is going to happen. We're, we're getting these mixed messages when we look at the bacteria. Um, and, and I'd like to see the, the fuzziness clear up a little bit. So the metabolic analysis is what's in the future. It's expensive right now. I can't afford it myself. So we're trying to figure out ways that we can, that, that price is coming down. It's coming down on a daily basis. 
but it's not quite yet within my budget. But I'm going to keep looking at that. And that's where we're going to find, I think that's where we're going to find the most amazing things. Well, very good, Scott. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.